question that confronts every single generation and every single human being is this. What is the good life? Ask anybody what that is, and they'll give an answer, or they may have to search for the answer, but everybody has an answer. And if I spent enough time with you, I would figure out what your theory of the good life is. In fact, if you come for the third installment of Questioning Christianity this Wednesday night at 6.30, the topic is satisfaction. Everybody needs a theory of satisfaction. Everybody needs a theory of the good life. We've all got one. We all need one. The Sermon on the Mount has been our, our, our food over the last several months. And just to be clear, to hear what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is not to misunderstand it as a, as a series of hoops that you have to jump through to make God like you. It is not a set of virtues that once you finally embrace them, that you have impressed God enough with your virtue, and he finally says, oh, finally, you finally come around. It's not that. It's also not a list of things and behaviors and tasks that you have to accomplish, and then that will ensure for you unlimited peace and eternal prosperity. It's not what the Sermon on the Mount is really talking about. The Sermon on the Mount has everything to do with what is that life that's good, the life that is in God, the life that is with God, the life that is for God, but all because you've come to believe that God is for you. And therefore, the, 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 the subtext of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the, the life that he is putting out on offer for us about what it means to walk in God's way in the knowledge of God's love is that he's really interested in one thing, the heart. Not your behaviors, not your practices, not your rituals, your heart. And therefore, the, the true fullness of what it means to have a heart that he adores is a whole heart. A heart that is free. A heart that is undeceived and undistracted. It is focused on him alone, and it gives thanks for all of who he is. That's the heart he intends for us. And that heart, that whole heart, that mature heart, that perfect heart, that is the heart that we see manifest in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And if our, his, if our whole heart is what he means for us, then Jesus cannot finish a sermon, a long sermon on what a whole heart is, unless he starts talking about how we think of our material resources. We all have some. We don't all have the same amount. But unless we think well about what they are and what they are for, that has an impact on our heart. We will need to reckon with that. And so he will in this passage. And the point that I think he's going to make here, and I'll just sort of front load it with you, here's the punchline of the sermon. The whole heart will never be shortchanged. The whole heart will never be shortchanged. That's Jesus' message unto us. And he's going to make that claim by talking to us about three things that are really one thing. The whole heart knows what to save because it knows how to see because it knows whom to serve. The whole heart that is central to the good life in God is the one that knows what to save because it knows how to see, because it knows whom to serve. 
That's where we're headed. If you're able to stand, let's hear six verses from his mouth. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the forthright word of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, thanks be to God. Have a seat. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> He's talking about three things that's really one thing. The nature of the whole heart when it comes to thinking about material resources. And in each one of those, you kind of heard him make a certain contrast in each one. And in the first passage of the text, he's talking about a contrast in terms of what we treasure. And in terms of what we treasure, we're talking about what we cherish, what we save, what we're devoted to, what we, what we pull in and hold on to and, and, and give thanks for and all that. And, and Jesus is out to make a contrast between treasuring in two different ways. He's warning about saving or treasuring or cherishing what is susceptible to loss. Everything you ever get a receipt for, anything that's registered in your name, uh, anything that has a shelf life or has an expiration date, everything that can become threadbare or go moldy or have to have um, repairs done on it or something that gets foreclosed on, all of that stuff. He says, beware of treasuring it because anything that seems solid and steady and safe and insurable, beware of treasuring that. And by treasuring, he means beware of being so, so having so much affection for it, being so inclined to it, having your heart so tethered to it that you think if you lost it, you yourself would be lost. That's what it is to treasure something. So um, if I may, um, let me show you one of my treasures. You've been wondering what's in this box, right? <clears throat> so this is R2-D2, and it's a cookie jar, and my mother got it for me in 1977. You can't buy these anymore. Are you taking a picture of me? Um, it's mine, and I don't let anybody touch it. And just so you know, a little bit of trivia, of all the paraphernalia that George Lucas might have, the only thing he has on his desk is one of these. Now, this is not it. This is not his. not signed. But this is it. And so I've had this for a long time. Now, look, um, it'll break one day. And I will be sad. Maybe I'll be disappointed. Um, maybe I'll, I'll blame a child. But it's, it's a lovely thing. It's subject to decay. Um, I bet uh, anybody in their 40s, they break into my house, this is what they're going to take. 
And so I, it's an, I have an appreciation for it. I, it's, a, it's a connection to my mother. It's a connection to my child. And all those things are good. But look, if I uh, uh, start screaming at people because they break it, or if I get into the fetal position because I've lost it, um, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, honey, <laughs> have we treasured something a little bit too much? We have. And I'm glad you can all laugh at this, and, I, and I'm trying to laugh at it. And I'm trying to make sure I don't put it too close to the edge of the stage. But... Um, Jesus is out to say, look, you can have affections for things, uh, and, and that's a wonderful thing, and you can give thanks for what is an heirloom unto you, but just, beware, just be very careful. He wouldn't have to say stuff like that if you and I didn't get so connected to what we have that if we lost it, we've kind of like, we lost everything. And it's sort of a seduction, and it's a lie to ourselves. And he's got to say that to us because we do. We start to value things more than people, we start to value things more than things that really do matter. And so instead, he's saying, look, if you're going to treasure something, if you're going to lay up something, lay up stuff that will last, that can't be broken, that can't get moldy, that can't get um, stolen, and therefore you'd have to insure it. Lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy nor thieves can break in and steal. And the first question out of our mouths is, like what? Everything dies. Everything breaks. Everything goes away. Everything ends up at goodwill. So what is that that will last? If you've been with us in this series, then you know that the Sermon on the Mount has something very pivotal in the background of what Jesus is talking about, and that is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. He's the even greater David than what we heard in the original, in the Old Testament reading this morning. He is our king. He's come to usher in a kingdom where God's will and way and power and presence are manifest in ways that's never been before, and it's meant to spread, and that kingdom shall not end. And therefore, whatever has a place in the kingdom is that which will prevail. And so if you want to value something, you want to invest in something, you invest in something that does not lose its return. You may not have an immediate payoff on it, but it will continue. So... Again, great, talking about things that last and they're part of the kingdom. What lasts and will be here forever? Whatever you invest to ensure fidelity and love in your marriage is something that will not die. Whatever you devote yourself to make sure that you speak with integrity, that will prevail. Whatever you invest in, whatever tears you shed, whatever blood you shed, whatever money it takes to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that's going to last. And you are no fool for pointing and directing yourself in that way, even if it means costing you in other material ways. It will last. Invest in that. It can't be lost to you. There's a line in the most recent Avengers film where, I won't ruin it for you, a character goes back in time and meets his own father on the week that he himself would be born. And ironically, this father who's about to have his first child is nervous about having a kid, and so he doesn't know he's talking to his own son when he's at full grown. And his, fa- and his, and his son says to this father, um, here's a little bit of wisdom for you. No amount of money ever bought a second of time. 
why would he need to say something like that? Why, why is that something that, that parents and mothers and fathers need to hear? Because, look, you and I can get wrapped up in all sorts of things that we think, that no, 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 this is matters. And, and no dads and kids and say, no, 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 no. None of that's going to buy you any more time. Jesus needs to say this to us because you and I can get so connected to, um, enamored with, uh, bewitched by anything that seems to have such greater value to us, but which really pales in comparison to things that really do have value. And you've got to think about this. He's talking to a very, you know, a first century setting, right, where there's not exactly a lot of people with McMansions anywhere. So if there's anybody that needs to hear it, it's us, because we have so much more access and uh, availability, the material resources that if there's anybody that needs to hear passage like this, it's us. He and I would tell us that there is something lasting, that there is something that though it maybe does not constitute what gives us an immediate pleasure, like trips and trinkets and all sorts of little things, that there is a kind of satisfaction that is even greater than all of those things combined. Late in the Harry Potter arc, and I, I, I say this, I know with a certain caveat, I know uh, perhaps it gives some people um, a little bit of ambivalence to even reference the storyline. I, I think there's something, uh, as my own personal conviction, that it speaks of friendship in ways that's really powerful. And late in that story arc, uh, Harry and Hermione are in Godric's Hollow, and they wander into a cemetery where Harry is looking for the grave of his dead parents. And they happen upon another grave, a grave that happens to have the name Dumbledore on it, which is their favorite wizard, and it happens to be the sister of Dumbledore. And there on the grave, inscribed on the grave, is Matthew 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reason that is on Dumbledore's sister's grave is because there was a season in which Dumbledore craved something more than love for his sister, and that was power. And through an awful turn of events, his quest for power led to the death of his sister. And therefore, as an expression of his own lament, of his own sorrow for how he valued something that was transitory rather than something that was beautiful, as almost his own penance to himself, on her grave, he places this passage, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever it is you value most, you know what that indicates? The trajectory of your heart, where it is headed, what it has to expect. You see a kid in a classroom and he's, and he's dozing off and the teacher says, Billy, where's your head? Right? In that moment, he's, he's, his mind is elsewhere. Um, he's thinking about other stuff. And he's got to be able to focus on what's before him, but his mind is elsewhere. Jesus is saying, where's your heart? And by asking us this, he's actually trying to tell us, your heart is revealed by what you invest in. By what you save, by what you cherish, and, and by how you respond when you lose something that was going to die or break anyway. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That is Jesus' overriding message for us all throughout the entirety of the sermon. What do you value? I want your whole heart. Because God looks on the heart. And therefore, what you save has a function, has a relationship to the character of your own heart. But what you save 
depends on something else. I can tell you the contrast between what will last and what won't, and that's fine, but, but there's something else that you require if you know what to save, and that is, secondly, how you see. How you see is put in verse 22 in a kind of a bizarre kind of way. It certainly doesn't roll off our tongues very easily, but he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, here's a little lesson in ophthalmology. I know that you know that light works like this, and your eye works like this. Your eye catches the reflection of the light off an object. That light comes down into your iris, down to the optic nerve, and you interpret it. It's like, ding, it's cocoa. I see cocoa. That's how your eye works. Now, that's modern ophthalmology. In Jesus' day, there were some people that would argue that your light wasn't simply receive, your eye wasn't receiving light, your eye was actually a producer of light. That your light had natural illumination to it, and therefore your light, your eyes kind of gave off light, kind of like Jawas. Woo, dee dee, right? Okay, you, uh, yeah, your, your eyes give off light, and that light is shot out by your eyes. Really cool idea, right? And it bounces off the object and then bounces back to you, like, I see, it's cocoa, right? Here's Jesus' point. Whether it's, it's modern or ancient ophthalmology, the idea is this. There is a kind of seeing, Jesus says, that's no seeing at all. There's a kind of sight that really is blindness. There's a way of functioning in this world in which the most obvious things to you, the most important things to you are hidden in plain sight. And you and I are susceptible to that condition. And one way I know is most of us make purchases less so because we really want that thing, but because a lot of other people around us have done the same. That our culture shapes our choices. That our background shapes our choices. That our desires are cultivated by all sorts of things that we don't have a clue about. And that causes us to see things in a certain way, such that we've become blind to all sorts of other things that are as plain as day to us, but which we just kind of filter out. That's the nature of sight. It can be filtered, and filtered in a way that we end up missing the most obvious thing. And that surely is true when it comes to material resources. St. Augustine, a long time ago, says, the more you get, the more you will want. Let's just put it this way. A whole economic system is hoping that that's true. You know, I've told you before, the toothpaste commercials, right? They put out like this whole band of toothpaste. I need that much? Oh, my God. Oh, yes, I do. The advertisement said so. And then I'm done with a bottle in two days. What you see cultivates in you an expectation of what ought to be, and you end up becoming blind to something even more important. The word there, the two words there about uh, good and evil, um, healthy and not, it's the words uh, uh, hapless and and you can kind of translate them generically in terms of good and bad, but I believe that in the background of Jesus' words here is the Old Testament, because he kind of was familiar with the Old Testament. And when it comes, therefore, when talking about an eye that is good or bad, if you want to listen to what he says in, for instance, Proverbs 22, not, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, 
for he shares his bread with the poor. That's the Old Testament Hebrew word that's in the background of of Jesus' word here. What is a good eye? What is a healthy eye? It's a bountiful eye. It's an eye that sees need and acts with compassion and generosity. Or in Deuteronomy 15, when it, and it talks about the, the Israelite uh, ritual of every seven years, liberating those who had debts, allowing the land to return to its original owner, you read in that text in 15.9, take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of jubilee, that's the year of release is near, and your eye look, what, grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. That is in the background of an eye that's evil. An eye that is bountiful is an eye that likes to be generous. It sees a need, and it seeks to be generous where it can. An eye that is evil in Jesus' background is an eye that is grudging. <clears throat> that maybe jumps to conclusions about why someone's in need and doesn't really care to know the story behind it. The health of an eye, therefore, it would seem, is how it sees the place of compassion and generosity. That where it sees goods and needs intersect, it likes to be involved in that moment. That it sees souls and it sees stuff and it knows which one is greater. That is a bountiful eye. The whole heart is at the center of a good life and it sees need as an opportunity for generosity. What do you save? Well, that has bearing or has relationship to how you see. But even in talking about what to save or how you see, that depends on one last thing. I can tell you what to save, or I can tell you what Jesus says what to save. I can also tell you, Jesus, about what it is to have a healthy eye. But all of that rests on one thing, whom you serve. In the last passage, uh, he speaks of something that uh, maybe reminds you if you ever took a logic class. Um, in logic class, at least one of the lessons was something cannot be one thing and not that thing at the same time. Okay? Um, Ed may at some point say, you know, Ed, I'm, I'm just not feeling myself today. No, 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 you're always Ed. There's never a time when you are not Ed. Ed is not Ed and not Ed at the same time. It's, it's you're Ed. For which we give God praise. Right? Jesus is saying that there is a, a logical impossibility uh, when it comes to two things. And it's what he says there in verse 24 and 25, right? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. All right, whoa. <laughs> what? <clears throat> What's he saying? You can't serve God and money. You can't be devoted to money in the same way you could be devoted to God. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Can you earn money and love God? Absolutely. Can you love getting a paycheck and still love God? That's not an issue. Can you, can you think ahead and, and put some money aside so that in a moment where there is an emergency, you have something to pull on and draw upon and still love God? Yes. Jesus is talking about something else. It's not that those two things can't happen simultaneously. He's saying this. You can't look to money in the same way that you look to the Lord. Next week, in the next passage, he's going to talk about be, be, be careful 
of, of thinking of your material resources as an ultimate security that only God can be for you. If I might say this by way of an introduction to what will come up in two Wednesdays from now when, when, when Tim Keller and we discuss the topic of identity, Jesus is saying this, there's one thing you can't do at the same time when it comes to money and God. You can't find an identity in money and also find an identity in God. I ask you who you are, you tell me your name. Your name describes you, but your identity defines you. That's who you are. And the thing about money and material resources is that a lot of times you and I will look at those things and derive something from it that it was never intended to offer. And that is a sense of importance and acceptance and identity that it is not there to provide. What money can be for us is a tool. It can be a gift. It can be a resource. It can be something that we are stewards of, that we take on loan for us and that we use to good purposes. Or you can let them be what defines you. When it comes to material resources, you can like stuff for what they do, but you can end up liking stuff because of the way others see you because you have them. And Jesus is out to warn us of the way you and I can be duped by what we have in such a way that we think of ourselves in a certain way because of how we're seen because we have them. You can't be devoted to God and the way he gives you an identity at the same time that you're trying to do the exact same thing with whatever material resources you have. It doesn't wash. It can't happen at the same time. A whole heart is never shortchanged because it is not looking for an identity in material resources in the same way that it is seeking an identity from God. George MacDonald would say that when it comes to material resources and the warning that Jesus is giving us, that applies to all sorts of places, not just in the money that you have. And so he says, not, nor does this lesson apply only to those who worship mammon. It applies to those equally who in any way worship the transitory, who seek the praise of men more than the praise of God, who would make a show in the world by wealth, by taste, by intellect, by power, by art, by genius of any kind, and so would gather golden opinions to be treasured in a storehouse of earth. Uh, students, it's cool that we like to share pictures of each other on Instagram. We like to do that stuff. But there's something in the background that you have to be kind of wary of, and that is how much are you doing that so that you can end up being liked? Adults do it too. I've done it also. To put forth the best face forward so that you would think of me in a certain way. Money can do that. The life you put out in public can do that. The people you quote can do that. There is an identity that we might seek in some ways that we have to find in God, which then asks the last question, how in the world do I do this? You, you can tell me, Pastor, Value the things that will last more so than the things that will not. Like check. Okay. Uh, know that a healthy eye is one that 
that sees need and is bountiful with generosity, check. Great. And also, don't look to my things as what gives me worth or identity instead of looking to God who gives me identity. Check. Great. Those are all great commands, and they're very helpful, and part of us think, yes, that makes perfect sense. And yet, um, and then we go home and we go, how am I going to do that? These things sound wonderful, but by tomorrow, it's kind of like, what do you say? I don't remember. Forget it. The only way you and I will come to treasure what God treasures is one thing. To believe that you're treasured. To believe that you're treasured in more ways and to a greater degree than anything else that you might purchase, obtain, hold, or show forth that gives you a certain measure of satisfaction. Unless you believe that you are more deeply treasured than any of that stuff, you will go after that stuff. If you were fortunate in this life, the first one to teach you what it meant to be treasured was mom. Because she practically died for you. She bled for you. She went under the knife for you. And that was only the beginning. So if you want to ever look back and wonder, have I ever been treasured before? Look on the wall at the picture, man, woman. There was something really profound about the nature of our mothers. They, with Jesus' help or not, or at least aware aware, aware of it or not, you were treasured. Go back to Godric's Hollow there at the end of the Harry Potter sequence. And in that same cemetery, not far from where Ariana Dumbledore's grave was, they finally found the grave of Harry's parents. And on that grave, they found this inscription. Another scripture, this time from the Apostle Paul. And on his parents' grave, it said, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. J.K. Rowling was very unequivocal in saying that the whole storyline of the whole Harry Potter series rested on those two texts. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The destruction of death is integral to that story. A mother's love in death was integral to that story. Guess what other story has the destruction of death as integral to its outcome? The story of the one who is speaking these words to us. The one who warned us of treasuring things that will not last. He died on a cross to make us his treasure. The one who warned us about seeing in a blind way, he was the one who looked past our sin and died to forgive it. The one who told us, don't find your identity in your things. He is the one who died to give us an inheritance that will not fade and sent us his spirit to give us assistance in the obedience of faith unto him. He did that, and he was the one to bring a destruction unto death, a destruction that he begun and a destruction that we wait for fully until he returns. He did that. And in doing so, he confirmed to us one thing. You cannot look upon Jesus, you cannot look upon that cross and not think that he doesn't treasure you. 
you will treasure what he treasures when you believe that he has come to treasure you like no one else or nothing else can. And that's why you and I need the gospel if we're ever going to think in the ways that he does. Because I really do enjoy too much the things that I have. I really do like to turn a blind eye to need and think about generosity only for my own sake. I really do think too often about finding my identity in something other than him rather than in the identity that he's given me in his son. But his love is everlasting. And what he offers us in himself is incomparable to anything else we might have or seek or hold. So what does it look like? What does it look like to believe that he treasures you most? You will think differently about your stuff or how much to get. You will see it not as your ultimate hope, but as tools and gifts for your enjoyment and the benefit of others. You will see need differently. You will see it not as simply a burden or an inconvenience, but as an opportunity for generosity. And you will see yourself differently. Not to have your identity defined by everything that you have or the face that you put forward, but by the identity that he's given you in his son that had nothing to do with you, that was entirely by grace. I want that one most. But I need to be reminded of it every week. The whole heart, friends, will never be shortchanged because he will never give up on you. And for that, we give him praise. Let's pray. Help us to see you as you see us. And then help us to see all that we, that is in our world, in our possession, or in our aspirations with an appropriate form of understanding. Help us to hold nothing too tightly but you. Help us to long for what will not fade. Help us to see need in a way that you do, for surely you came to our deepest need and offered us the greatest love. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.